I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going through a sermon series on 1 Corinthians, and as we go through, we're in chapter 7 this morning, where the Lord happens to have us. We're actually going to cover a a large chunk, and there's a reason for it. It's thematically united, but it's a large passage, verses 1 through 24. Uh, I won't read all of it as the beginning, we'll read it as we go, but if you need to stand up and stretch, and uh, you need to put your thinking cap on, do whatever you need to do, uh, we're going to go through uh, a large section, and we'll go through it very quickly. So I'm going to ask you to have, your again, your thinking caps on, and... um, if you have questions about anything we skip or miss along the way, feel free to talk after. It's always love uh, talking about the text after the sermon, but we may not hit. In fact, I guarantee we won't hit every question you may have about this complicated and nuanced passage. But we're going to take it all together, and I hope by the end you'll see why we're doing so. And this may be something unique to those in my age bracket, but for many in my generation, status updates are a big deal, or were. I think it may have started back in the days of MySpace, uh, back when that was a thing, uh, in my college years, uh, and definitely in the days of Facebook, where status updates were a big deal. So if somebody you were interested in, you found a, an attractive person, and you say, oh, well, what's going on with their social life? And you can go to their profile and you can see what their status was. Ah, in a relationship. Darn, what are, you know, you get disappointed. And then you kind of every once in a while go back. Has there been an update? Single, all right, game on. Or the, the, it's complicated, and now you don't, don't know what to do with that. But. But you pay attention to these status updates, and these status updates are a really big deal because these are the most significant things about us, right? Whether we're in a relationship, whether we're single, married, or other kinds of status updates, where we work, where we live, what context we live in, in our minds, these are things we want to put front and center because they are the most important defining things about us, right? The surprising thing is as we read Scripture, particularly 1 Corinthians 7, we find that actually they are not the most important things about us. They are not God's priority for us. And in fact, the key to happiness is not found in whether or not you are married or single, or where you live, where you work. All these things that are so significant, in many ways, are inconsequential to whether or not we are going to be faithful to God. And by that I mean we can be faithful to the Lord and follow Him, and we have everything we need to serve Him faithfully regardless of our status. That's really Paul's point and his theme as he works through these issues in 1 Corinthians 7. And his main point is that no matter our circumstance, we are called to holy contentedness. No matter our circumstance, we are called to holy contentedness. That's the lesson of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 24, that no matter where we are, no matter what status we find ourselves in or what context, we are called to be content. 
to be holy and to obey God there. In this section, Paul transitions to what appears to be answering questions that the Corinthians had. In the first six chapters, Paul is addressing the issues he had with Corinth, often repeating the phrase, do you not know? So he's taking issue with them. Now, Paul's tone changes pretty dramatically. He is much more pastoral in answering questions, nuanced, and he appears to be answering questions they had for him. And he's trying to apply some pastoral wisdom, giving some counsel for complicated situations. And there is a convictional thread that ties all of Paul's thinking together. It's found in verse 24 where he says, In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. That is Paul's underlying pastoral theology for the church in Corinth that will dictate how he's going to answer the rest of these questions and speak to the rest of these contexts, that no matter where you are, no matter what condition you're found when you're called by God, Wherever you are, there remain with God, and in that context, in that situation, follow his commandments. And that is what's most important, not seeking to change or update your status. The things that we are so consumed with actually don't consume God the same way. He wants us to be faithful to him no matter where we are. God calls us to remain with God in all sorts of contexts. And we're going to examine five, as we, actually probably more than that, but five sections, we'll break this text up into five sections, as we look at how we remain with God in these contexts. And first, Paul wants the church in Corinth to remain with God in marital intimacy. Remain with God in marital intimacy. Paul's agenda for them will that they will be holy, they will obey God in their marital intimacy. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then, come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul begins this whole section by quoting what appears to be a slogan that the Corinthians had. Many in the church believed this maxim, this slogan to be true, that it is good for a man literally not to touch a woman. So there was this thinking that was out there, or this truth that was accepted. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Last week, if you were here, you might remember, we talked about how many in Corinth and in that time the Greco-Roman world felt like the body was not as important as the spirit, that the spirit was greater than the body. What you did in the body didn't matter as much. What you did in the spirit was far more important, and the spiritual took precedence. And often the way that worked out was some felt that you could do anything you wanted with your body. 
Because the body didn't matter. It was the spirit that mattered. Because the spirit was more important than the body. That general thinking could also go the other way if you believe the spiritual is far more important than the body or the spirit is greater than the body. That could lead you to doing whatever you want with the body or you could say, because the body is so low and filthy and the spirit is the godly stuff, the body is the lowly stuff, that we don't indulge the body in any way. Uh, we don't indulge any appetites or pleasures. So that kind of thinking of putting the spirit above the body could lead you to licentiousness or rigid legalism. Of the body is beneath us, it's filthy, so we don't indulge it in any way, which may have led some people to come up with this slogan, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, it's better to stay, quote-unquote, pure. And Paul's going to address that and say, well, maybe, but consider this. So he's going to correct some of this confusion about the body and sexual intimacy. He says, in a marriage, a man should have his own wife and a woman should have her own husband. This is what marriage is, according to Scripture, a one-to-one. One man, one woman. And that is the healthy context of sexual activity. And... As we go through this, notice how Paul applies these things equally to men and to women. Husband should have a wife. The wife should have a husband. The husband owns, so to speak, the body of the wife and vice versa. The wife owns the body of the husband. There is an egalitarian nature to the way this partnership is to work out, which would have been totally countercultural in a male-dominated world where, where men owned, so to speak, and dominated over wives, Paul brings in something totally countercultural, which is the wife has all the same rights and intimacy that the husband does, and they are to serve one another. In fact, it says, he says conjugal rights must be given to both. It says give what is owed. The language there is transactional. It's a language of indebtedness. <laughs> when you are married, you are owed this to your spouse. You are to give this intimacy to your spouse. I want you to pay attention to this part because this is where people twist this to hurt others. This sexual intimacy that is owed to your spouse, it is to be given, not demanded. That's what Paul is saying here. You do not have the right to go to your spouse and say, I demand this because Scripture says. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says you are obligated to give. It's about giving love to the other, not taking for yourself. And Paul envisions a relationship where each person in the marriage freely gives of themselves for the sake of the other. Why? Because you actually own the other. So if you've ever bought a house or a car, you know that after you do all the paperwork, you have that sacred moment where somebody hands you the keys, right? And that's a symbolic act saying, you now own this. That is what happened when you were married. 
when you put the rings on each other's finger or whatever you did for that ceremony, you gave the keys to your own body to your spouse. Said, you now own this. It is yours. And Paul envisions a relationship where each is owned by the other. Because each owned the other person, each is not to deprive the other person. Again, another transactional term. Deprive literally means stealing or theft. To deprive the other person of intimacy is to steal from them what is rightfully theirs. It's actually to take from them because they own that body. Your bodies belong to one another. There's a well-known church discipline case in Puritan, New England. I may have mentioned this before. When you think of Puritans, what do you think? You think of Puritanical people who hate pleasure, right? Who are rigid and uptight. Well, there's a well-known church discipline case where a man was removed from the church. He was excommunicated because he was neglecting his wife in intimacy. He felt like he didn't owe his wife anything and he refused to sleep with her. So the church rightly excommunicated him because he was in violation of scripture. Paul's word is you are not to withhold from the other person, except maybe for a short time. Notice he says, by agreement, literally with one voice, if you would agree together for prayer. Couples are to agree. This gives a voice to the woman in the relationship. You're not an object just to be owned by your husband. There is a mutuality there. You have to agree on this together. Why? For the purpose of prayer. It's not unlike fasting from food. You deprive yourself of something physically so that you may focus on dependence upon God. Paul says maybe in that case, that is a time where husbands and wives may, quote-unquote, deprive one another. But after a short time, come together. Paul knows that when there's separation in intimacy in the marriage, that is an opportunity for Satan, he says, to tempt. For the spouse to find intimacy elsewhere. So he says, give of yourself to each other. If you abstain, do it for a short time for prayer, and then after a while, come together. And Paul says, I'm giving all this as a concession. I wish everybody could be celibate like I am, but that is not the case. Not all people have that gift of celibacy, so serve one another. The emphasis in all of Paul's counsel here is that in marriage you are to give yourself to the other person, sacrificially, generously. Not take from them what you think you need, but give to them what is best for them. Why? Because that is what Christ has done with his church. He has given up his own body for his church, and his church lays down its own body for Christ to worship him. It is about mutual, exclusive, sacrificial love. And the reason for all of Paul's counsel here, what's the motivation? 
is holiness. He doesn't want intimacy to go elsewhere. He wants it to be kept in the context of marriage for the purpose of obeying God and keeping commandments. So some were saying, oh, we probably shouldn't have sex in marriage. And often what was going on is men were saying, well, I only sleep with my wife for procreation, but then I have mistresses and other things on the side. That was common at the time. And Paul's correcting all of that and saying, no, you are to give to your wife and your wife to you, and there's supposed to be this relationship of love where you serve one another. Why? For the purpose of holiness. It is about obedience to God, making sure that there is no temptation to go elsewhere, to remain with God in marital intimacy. That is Paul's heart and his motivation. That motivation runs through the next context. Remain with God in marital intimacy. Remain with God in singleness. Remain with God in singleness. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul now switches. He was talking to married people. Now he's talking to single people who are like him. And we don't know whether Paul was just single at that time, if he was divorced or widowed, if his spouse had left him, or if he had just been single his whole life. But Paul says, I wish all could be like me, having the ability to be celibate, to not be dominated by desire for marital intimacy. And Paul says it's a good thing to be single. It is not somehow inferior in the eyes of God not to be married. That is not a lesser state. That is not an undesirable state. It's just a different condition. We know that one of the reasons for marriage and for having families and kids is for that purpose of sanctification, that marriage and kids can sanctify you in a way and challenge you in a way that nothing else can. Likewise, being single can challenge you and sanctify you, and God can use that to grow you in a way that married people will never understand and teach you dependence upon him, what to do in lonely times and how to be close to the Lord. There is a sanctifying path there that is unique, and it is not lesser. We do a disservice, I think, to single people often by holding up marriage as the ultimate for all people. This is the ultimate life accomplishment. It's not. It's a wonderful thing, but it's not the only thing. And God doesn't hold out marriage for all people. God's heart isn't that all people be married. There's actually something more important. God's heart for you is to be sanctified, to grow in Jesus Christ and be obedient to him. And sometimes that's best done outside of marriage. And sometimes there are opportunities to serve the Lord that are outside of marriage and family that are unique. So God's calling upon your kids as you pray for them may not be that they have a spouse. And maybe your prayer shouldn't only be that your kids get married because it isn't the key to happiness. And it isn't the key to a fulfilled life And it isn't the only reason we exist. We exist for the glory of God and obeying him, and that can be done in every circumstance and context. So 
So Paul says, if you can be single, great. You don't have to work to be married if you don't want to be. And Paul gives an exception. He says, normally he'd prefer that all people would be single, would be single and devoted to the Lord, and there's this one exception. If you burn with passion because of your lack of self-control, and when we read that at first, that could be troubling because we might interpret that to think that, well, you should be single unless you're one of those people just sexually can't control themselves. And then you should marry somebody so that poor soul can just receive all of your passion and just be used. And be, that's not what Paul is talking about here. I think what Paul is saying is, it's good to be single unless you're one of those people that you want to be devoted to the Lord and you're trying to focus on living for him, but you just have that constant distracting desire to be married and to be intimate. And if that desire is so strong that it keeps you from focusing exclusively on the Lord, then Paul says, sure, go ahead and be married. As, as a concession, that's fine too. And you notice that Paul almost has a certain blasé attitude about marriage or singleness. Says, if you could be single, great. If, if you need to be married, fine. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, are you being obedient to the Lord and following him? And you can do so in either context. Paul even wants people to remain with God in possible divorce, which is the next condition he addresses, verses 10 through 11. Remain with God in possible divorce, verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. You notice it goes both ways here. He's talking to husband and wife. He's speaking to those who might have questions about divorce. And he's saying, this command is not just my opinion. I'm quoting the Lord Jesus here. He doesn't directly quote Jesus, but he's referencing all of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. And you can read that in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Matthew 19, 3 through 12, Mark 10, 2 through 12, and Luke 16, 18. Jesus touches on marriage and divorce, but Paul kind of boils it all down here. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not separate from his wife. You are not to be divorced, is basically the teaching of Scripture in Paul. And separated there is the same concept as divorce. It's just two different words that mean the same thing. They didn't have our modern understanding of separation for a period before divorce, and those being different. For them, that was the same thing. To be separated was to be divorced. And Paul's saying, don't be. Don't divorce your spouse. There are exceptions, of course, where divorce is permitted. Not mandated, but permitted. Scripture clearly teaches divorce is permissible in the case of adultery. I believe Scripture also envisions divorce being permissible in cases of abandonment or abuse, where one spouse has so thoroughly broken the covenant, they have left the other, or they have endangered the other person through abuse. In those situations, the one who was harmed or left or abandoned is free to divorce without sin. In Exodus 21, 10 through 11, there's a law about a man taking on a wife. It says he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. 
This is in the Old Testament law. It says, a husband shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or marital rights. In other words, he's to provide these things. And marital rights is a word for sex. It says, if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, she is free to leave him without penalty. I think that lays the groundwork for this idea that you are free to leave or divorce your spouse without judgment if the spouse abandons you or puts you in harm's way. So there are situations where divorce is permissible, but it is not normal and it's not condoned in most situations. And Paul says, if someone divorces or separates from their spouse without such justification, they should remain single. They're not free to remarry. If they want to be married, they're free to go back to their spouse and reconcile. Otherwise, live singly. It's one of those areas where I'm not sure if we actually believe our scriptures. If I'm just going to be blunt. We're really good at excusing our motivations and our reasons. You say, this is really hard, this teaching, that somebody's actually called to live single if they divorce somebody without justification and they just leave their spouse. They can't just go remarry another person. They're supposed to just be single. This teaching on divorce is really hard. And yeah, it is. Because God takes marriage very seriously. In fact, the disciples thought Jesus' teaching on marriage was impossible. That was their response. And Jesus says, you should stay with your spouse unless in this case of adultery. But other than that, you need to be committed to your spouse lifelong. The disciple says, well, it's better not to marry then. That was their response. Who could do that? And the response is, it's possible with God. God is for you in this. In living wholly for him, God is with you and will be with you. And he is against divorce. First, because divorce is against God's own character as a faithful God who is covenantally committed to his people, despite all of their reckless sin, God commits himself to his people. He is a faithful covenant God and he wants his people to be the same towards one another. And secondly, because divorce rarely helps. I'm not talking about the situation where somebody needs to be separated or divorced for their own safety, or for something like that. I'm not talking about that situation. I'm saying where two, couple, two people just can't get along. So they say, well, well, we'll just be apart, we'll marry somebody else, and that'll fix it. And the answer is, no, it won't. Because your joy, your contentedness, and your happiness is not wrapped up in who you are married to. And it is not found in your spouse. Your spouse is not an idol to be worshipped. They cannot give you all you need. Your joy and your happiness and your contentedness is found in God himself. And if you think you're going to find it by hooking up with somebody else, you are deceived. I've lived long enough, not terribly long, but long enough to see people who thought divorce would help them and make them happier, and it didn't. 
because these status changes aren't the key to life. Serving God where you are is. That will continue on in the next context that Paul wants to consider. Remain with God in possible divorce, and if you do get divorced, remain with God there. Be wholly devoted to him. And then also remain with God in mixed marriages. It's the next context in verses 12 through 16. Remain with God in mixed marriages. These are marriages where one spouse is a believer and the other isn't. Likely what happened is there, there are many who became believers after they were married. So one's converted, the other isn't, and now they're wondering what to do. <laughs> what should I do about that? So they're asking Paul, and Paul says, his words here in verses 12 through 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here Paul addresses that situation where one spouse is a believer and the other isn't, and he gives a, a, a command, and he's saying, not the Lord, but I. And what he means by that is Jesus never taught on this directly. Like, this is a situation where Jesus in his earthly ministry never specifically addressed this situation, so Paul is inferring from the theology of Jesus in the gospel, and he is saying, here's what you should do. Paul isn't saying you don't have to listen to this. Paul has no problem claiming authority, but he's just saying, I don't have direct word from Jesus on this, from his earthly ministry. Here is the counsel for the, all those who are living in the church. If you have an unbelieving spouse, stay with them if you can. And the question would have been brought up, why? Let's say you are a Christian in that time, you're following up on the old covenant of Israel, transitioning into what does it mean to be a Christian under this new covenant? and you read your Old Testament in places like Ezra and Nehemiah, and you find all these places where God condemns Israel and the men for marrying foreign wives who worshipped other gods. And you look at your own unbelieving spouse and you say, oh, is that me? Like, in the Old Covenant, God commanded Israel not to marry foreign spouses because they would lead them to worship other gods, and that was not okay for their holiness and their spirituality. So they would wonder... um, what about us? And when I read in Haggai, there's this concept that like uncleanness spreads. That's in Haggai too. So will this unbelieving partner like contaminate our marriage? Will that unbelieving spouse defile our union by their unbelief? What do we do? So it's a natural question that came up and Paul says, no, stay with your spouse. If they'll allow you, if they'll stay with you, stay with them. After all, who knows? Maybe your witness will be the thing that saves them. You never know how your presence, how your faith, how the Holy Spirit in you might be a witness to them that is compelling and is the very thing that God uses to bring them to faith. So stay with them if they'll allow it. In fact, not only do they not defile your marriage, not only do they not make your marriage invalid, you actually sanctify them. That's what Paul means when he's talking about you make them 
holy. Does that mean people are saved by their believing spouse? No, because remember, Paul just say a couple verses later, you might save them, it's not a guarantee. So your presence there doesn't automatically save them, but in some way, your presence there sanctifies your home. Why? Remember what Paul said for a couple chapters now about you and your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit? If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. God lives with you so that where you live, God lives. And the Holy Spirit dwells. And there's this verse in Exodus 29, 37 says, Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. That if anything touched the altar in the tabernacle in the temple, that thing would become holy. Holy transfers over. And then you have Jesus coming around and touching lepers, and people think, Jesus, aren't the lepers going to make you unclean? Jesus says, no, on contraire. I actually make the lepers clean. This is what the Holy Spirit does through Jesus and through his people, that things that touch wherever God dwells, become in some way sanctified and holy. So God, Paul is saying, the Lord is saying through his text, that you, as a believer, sanctify your home. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> like, I don't know. But I trust that there is some way in which the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, in your home, in your marriage, among your kids, the fact that the Holy Spirit is there and present has spiritual benefits that we probably will never fully realize that we might see them if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn. And we might wonder what happened to all this goodness that we felt. There's just ways in which the Holy Spirit blesses us and blesses our lives that we don't know or comprehend as Christians. And Paul is saying that also occurs with you and your spouse in your home. So stay there. Let it be. And if somebody wants to leave you because of your faith, Paul also says, surprisingly, let it be. Don't fight them. If they leave, it's not your job to try and fight them, to keep them there, and to force them to stay in the marriage. In fact, Paul says, you're you're free, you're not bound. What I think he means by that is you're free to remarry. You're not obligated to them. Because God has called you to peace. You're called to be at peace and live holy lives. You're free to let them go. What Paul is telling them is, you're not obligated to fight for your status and your social condition and your, even your own marriage in every context, in every case. So that's not actually what's ultimate. What's ultimate is following the Lord. And then Paul's going to provide two other test cases for that. So stick with me for just a couple more minutes. Because this ties it all together, verses 17 through 24. And Paul says, remain with God in every condition. That's his point here. Whatever condition you find yourself in, and he's going to list two social conditions, whether you are circumcised or not, and whether you are slave or free. In either of those two circumstances or social conditions, remain with God. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. 
This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant? Or were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul repeats his theme three times in this section. Verses 17, 20, and 24. Wherever you were called, remain there. That's his counsel. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows what Rule 9 is in the United States Golf Association's Rules of Golf. Do we have any golfers? And in the official rule book, do you know what Rule 9 is? It's ball played as it lies. So after a stroke, wherever the ball sits, that's where you're taking your swing from. You don't try and improve the condition of your lie. You don't manipulate the area. You've got to take your swing from there. Paul applies that principle here to life. Play it where it lies. Where were you called? Were you circumcised or uncircumcised when you were called? And this was important because it really marked you out as whether you were Jew or Gentile. And some people thought to be good Christians, they'd have to become more Jewish. And that was a big debate in the early church. Well, I have to be circumcised if I'm going to be Christian and follow Christ because that's what Jewish people do. And that was the command of the Old Testament and all that. There were some people who thought they had to be uncircumcised in order to follow Christ, that they had to renounce their Judaism. And there actually was a process by which you could become uncircumcised. There was a medical technique for that. So some people thought they were supposed to do that. And Paul's saying, neither. It actually doesn't matter. Which is hugely shocking, considering how important circumcision is in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Paul says, no, you are only obligated just to stay where you are, keep the commands of Christ. Follow God and obey his commands. Isn't God one of God's commands to be circumcised? Not anymore. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the law of Christ. Now, this is a point, just as a side note, where your mind starts to get curious and you start asking questions of the text if you really dig with it and spend a lot of time with it. And you start to ask, like, how would anybody know? <laughs> this is just a question. I, uh... Apparently, athletes... Um, competed in the nude at that time, so that was part of it. And apparently there are other ways it would be known. But it was a big deal culturally. Like, culturally, it was seen as important and significant. Are you Jew or Gentile? And there are so many things that are culturally important to us. Which class are we in? And Paul's word is, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, obey Christ. Even if you are called as a slave. We could spend a ton of time on here. Uh, there were lots of differences and similarities between the system of slavery in Paul's time in the Roman world and what we know of as the transatlantic slave trade in early colonial days. There are overlaps, there are significant differences. There's 
a much wider variety of how slaves were treated in the Greco-Roman world and opportunities for slaves. There were even times where people sold themselves back into slavery because in certain contexts it afforded them more social capital. By and large, though, as a slave, you were owned by somebody else. You were at the whim of their treatment. That could be wonderful. It could be horrific. It was all over the place. It was not based on race at this time. It was based on, basically, commerce. It was a class thing. But it carried with it a wide variety of outcomes. Some of it really, truly brutal. And ultimately, you are owned by somebody else. And Paul says, even in that situation, live as you were called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. In other words, don't spend your life fighting for what was called time manumission, the process by which slaves were freed, became independent people. Paul says that shouldn't be your ultimate desire. If you can be freed, go for it. Paul says avail yourself of the opportunity. If it, there's a window, good, better to be free than to be a slave. But even then, the most important thing is that you are free to live for God. You are not a slave spiritually. Live as somebody who is free to serve Jesus Christ because you are free. No matter what your social condition, you have been freed from sin. This is actually, I think, very challenging for us. We don't have a system of slavery formally in place. There's trafficking and all sorts of other things, but thank God we do not have this system in our context. But we have all sorts of other social status things and conditions that we might obsess over. In fact, we are a culture obsessed with identifying ourselves. And how are we seen culturally? And how are we viewed? Are we educated? Are we upper class, middle class? Poor, Anglo, black, Latino, KU, K-State, however it is that we identify ourselves, we see these things as hugely important, and it's hugely important in young people, the most important decision you'll ever make is which college you go to and who you marry, and that's not true. These are important things, but they're not ultimate things. The ultimate thing is, will you live freely for the Lord? Why? Because he bought you. And he is your master and nobody else. Not any other social pressure, not any other social condition. The Lord bought you by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And he has freed you from sin and death and made you his. He is your Lord. So wherever he appoints you, wherever your God gives you marching orders, whether that be wonderful or hell on earth, there live for him. And that is Paul's overall point in all of this. Remain with God in every condition. No matter our circumstance, we are called holy contentedness because we have a master who bought us by the blood of his son. Do you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this text. And there's a lot there, and it's complicated, and it gets into life situations that can be messy. 
But Lord, help us to keep our eye on the ball and this ethic that should drive every of um, our decisions, all of our decisions, all of our circumstances, that no matter where we are, Lord, we want to live for you to do what glorifies you, honors our master. And if we do that, we will love others, we will serve others, and we will find our ultimate contentedness and our joy and our hope there. Not in so many other things that we think are going to fix us. Lord, let us live wisely and live according to you. Amen.